This is an ABC podcast. For many years, Tova Jansen spent her summers on a remote island off the coast of Finland. She lived there with her partner, Tudi. The two women would read, drink coffee, listen to the radio, walk along the beach, and only very occasionally bother to have a bath or do the housework. At that time, Tova Jansen was beloved all round the world as the creator of the Moomin characters, who featured in nine books and for many years a daily comic strip. The Canadian writer Sheila Hetty has recently written a piece for the New Yorker magazine about Tova Jansen, and Sheila is my guest on Conversations from Home today. Her own books include the novel How Should a Person Be and Motherhood, a really fascinating investigation into whether or not to have a child. Hi, Sheila. Hi. Let's start with the Moomins. What are they like for someone who's who's never seen one? They're sort of these round, sweet-looking creatures that sort of stand on two legs and look a little bit like hippopotamuses standing up and have all the characteristics of um, humans. Uh, the, the central Moomin is sort of a, a young, seems like a sort of boy, um, but he has a girlfriend and parents, and they're very uh, affectionate, close-knit family that have their own problems with each other. You know, it's not an overly sweet world, but um, it's a very tender world that the, the Moomins occupy and that they represent. And what kind of things happen to them? What kind of adventures do does this Moomin family and, and friends get up to? They often go on t- out, out into the sea. They go to a casino. <laughs> they w- wander. Um, they wander through Moomin Valley. Um, there's a lot of adventuring and there's a lot of being at home and returning to home and getting lost and making friends. And, you know, she, she it, it became, a like you said, a daily strip for seven years. So there's just so much that they get up to, um, you know, to keep a, a daily strip going. Did you read them as a kid growing up? No, I didn't. I I discovered them a few years ago, um, and sort of w- was recaptivated. There was a, there's a Canadian publisher called Drawn and Quarterly who reissued all the books in English, and uh, that's how I discovered them. And then you know the New Yorker asked me to write this this piece about Jensen when her letters were published just this last month. And Moomins ha- have had this whole second life on merchandise. I have to confess that I'm actually drinking from a Moomin cup as I speak to you, <laughs> Sheila. <laughs> but that's, they're not limited that's to that. Great. Give me a sense of the, the kind of merchandise that, that exists with Moomins emblazoned on them. They're incredibly popular, um, especially in the, like, in, in Norway and Sweden. They, I mean, they're popular all over the world, but they're, they're sort of like the, the most recognizable cartoon figure that you can imagine like anything bigger than disney ever did they're every there every every house has some human thing in it you know like a tea towel or like you say a cup um stuffed animals they just in even in their own time they became instantly huge worldwide phenomenon the comics were in a hundred countries in the world and there was tv shows and movies and the creatures are just so appealing. Like I have um, a two-year-old niece and the first time I read her a Moomin book, she was instantly like, again, 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 again. <laughs> you know, there's just something about them that's so human and um, there's something so honest about about these stories. So Tova Jansen, their creator, she was born in Finland. What kind of family did she grow up in? 
Her parents were both artists. She helped her mother with her design, her illustrations, all her commissions. Her father was a sculptor. It was a very charismatic family. They entertained a lot, a very bohemian environment. Um, she had siblings that were also sort of artistic. And, you know, she basically continued in that world her whole life. Mm. She was always friends with other artists. Um, yeah, she entertained a lot. Uh, she began she, life as a painter, didn't she? That's what she started she studying. And what what sort of work did she create? Have you seen any paintings from from her early life? Yeah, I mean, she went to art school. The the paintings were not um, anything r- radical. Um, you know, she they were she did this large scale portrait of her family. That was something that she worked on for quite a long time. Her painting sold. She had success as a painter, but I don't think she ever felt at home as a painter, like in herself as an artist. It was never, she was never able to bring off the paintings to her own satisfaction. They never felt like they were, um, yeah, she just never felt like she got it. There was something about the form that it was, it was dear to her, but it, it wasn't quite right. She has a, a painting, a big oil work of a family group that I think must have been painted during World War II. How does that image come across to you? Or what does that suggest about the relationships in the family when you, when you look at her painting of her family? I mean, the family was very close, but the, all the figures are sort of, they're all sort of very close together, s- sort of sitting and standing around a table, a dinner table, but they are all in their own worlds. There's like a melancholy feeling. Her beloved brother was off at war. So I think that, that you know, there was also a lot of strain, the same way all of us are feeling a lot of strain right now. There was a lot of tension in the family, a lot of psychological um, tension and also fights, uh, fights with her father. And the painting shows that angst of that time that the family was experiencing. So she trained as a, a painter, but never quite felt that she'd found her form. When did she start? first creating these little creatures that end up getting called moomins? Um, well, they they exist sort of in early form. She was a cartoonist, like she did political cartoons, and there was like a little moomin that she would sort of draw beside her signature. So that, that creature existed, um, but it didn't really come into its own until during the Second World War when she, you know, there's this wonderful quote from her letters at, you know, she said that they. She started writing about the movements at a time when she was feeling depressed and scared of the bombing, and she wanted to get away from her gloomy thoughts into something else entirely. She says, "I crept into an unbelievable world where everything was natural and benign and possible." So the first real movement book was basically for children. It had illustrations and and story, and it was it kind of reflected the the atmosphere of the time because these. The creatures are lost. They're, you know, she. The moon has lost his her, his father. They're wandering through this sort of torn up landscape. Um, so there's something of the Second World War and the anxieties in the story, but at the same time, it's this completely other world, like a fantasy world. Um, you know, where things turn out well in the end. So she she was working on it at that time, and she didn't really feel like it was a serious endeavor. It wasn't like the large-scale painting, which she understood to be an important thing to be working on. This was something on the side that she just escaped into. And did people respond to them straight away, Sheila? Even if Tova herself was a little bit unsure if they were worth much, did readers respond? 
Yeah, well, she didn't publish it until a friend read it and said that she should publish it. So it was really this friend that urged her to, you know, put it in the world. And and she did. It was published in 1945. It was called The Moomins and the Great Flood. And and people loved it right away. And, you know, the next book came one year later and it was just <laughs> all moomins, you know, for, for, for a decade <laughs> full, at least full after steam that. moomins. Yeah. You, you yeah. said that reading it to your niece, you know, there's something very engaging about the stories and the characters, whether you're an adult or, or a little kid. What kind of moral code exists in those stories? I mean, they're partly whimsical and playful, but is there also a sort of morality that you can discern in Moomin world? Yeah, well, it's interesting. I mean, a lot of stories that children are drawn to are stories where there aren't parents. You know, there's some kind of device that creates an orphanness about about the character so they can have their invent- adventures away from the family. But yeah, they're at the boarding school kind of or the- they're staying at a, a, a relative's house, they're camping. That's true. That's a real theme, isn't it, of being away from the family home. Yeah, Little Orphan Annie or Madeline, you know, there's just like this trope, you know, but with the Moomins, it's the opposite. It's the family structure that sort of keeps the world intact and makes adventuring possible. So even though Moomin has adventures, there's always the sense that there's a mother close by, um, that there's that the family represents safety, and that safety grounds Moomin. It grounds the whole world. The mother is a very kind of traditional, traditionally like caretaking sort of figure, you know, and the father represents this desire to adventure and he's always sort of wanting to leave the family and like blow up his life. But, you know, the mother <laughs> follows dutifully behind, you know, so there's always this sense of the mother keeping the family together. And I think there's something appealing about that. It's interesting though. I think, I think what makes them appealing, even as you are older, is that that there's not a, a simple moral lesson, you know, like when you're getting in, reading an Enid Blyton story, you know that the naughty character or the vain character will be punished. But in Moomin, it's like how their failings or their peculiarities are sort of celebrated. Their sensitivities are, are understood in a way. There's not, there's not the sort of vengeful author that's about to jump out of the page and punish the characters who are, who are silly or naughty. Yeah, exactly. And there's something kind of, you know, like the snork maiden is the name of Moomin's girlfriend. And she's very vain and she loves looking at herself in the mirror and she loves jewels. And and, and she's never, like you say, punished for that. She's never condemned for that. It's just a fact about her, you know, or the way that the father's kind of restless. It's never that he learns to not be restless. It's just a part of his character. So there's something very accepting about Tova Jansen in terms of her relationship to these characters and their foibles. The early books, the early Moomin books, chapter books with her drawings, but they weren't comics. How did the Moomin family become a cartoon strip? She was asked um, by the London Evening News to turn them into a strip, and, and she did that. Um, it was a daily strip. She she worked on it for seven years, and then... Gosh, that must have been a punishing schedule, a daily strip for seven years. Yeah, I mean, she she gave it up after seven years. The strip continued. Her brother took over the strip, actually, but she just couldn't do it anymore. She never wanted anything to do with movements after that, you know. Even <laughs> though, <laughs> you know, that she she had to she had to still be in relation to it because it was such a you know it's basically such a huge endeavor by that point that she had to continue to you know be in relation to it. But she stopped the strip. And you don't think she missed drawing the movements after she handed it over to her brother? Well, she she says in her letters that it was like 
a toothache. You don't want to, you, you don't look back on that time fondly. She said, she, yeah, I think it, when it was done, it was done. <laughs> In the, the early years that she was having success with the Moomin characters back in the, the late 40s and 50s, what was happening in Tove Jansen's private life? She, she sort of discovered that she was a lesbian. I mean, she, she first dated men, but then, you know, she fell in love with two women, the, the second who would become her lifelong partner. And it was, it was a huge <laughs> unfolding of herself. The way that she describes that in the letters is really some of the most powerful stuff in the book. Like, what, what does she say? She just, she said it was like a room and a house that you, You've always been living in this house, but you never knew that that room existed and that you walk in. So it, it was it was basically like a whole part of herself was revealed to her, um, you know, a much deeper passion. Like she, the, the way that she writes about having boyfriends, th- there, there was something cooler about it. But then with the women, she's just completely swept up. She feels great, much greater intimacy. Um even with her female friends, she had much greater intimacy with it than with any of the men in her life. It, it, women were very, very important to her in all sorts of ways. Did any of this, you know, this this is Finland in the nineteen late nineteen forties, early fifties, where Tova Jansen's realizing she's gay. I'm imagining that wasn't socially terribly acceptable. Was was she funneling any of that into her movement work? Do you think there are themes or characters that? that convey what was going on with her or are they they they're more separate than that well yes she created a character based on her what would become her long-term partner who we called tutti that was what she called her as a nickname um and you know there was there was a great deal of affection that she showed to this character and yeah i mean it was but it was more than that it, it was it was not just the characters it it was I don't know, some sense of like great artistic production at that time, which I think was because of this sort of discovery of this part of herself that felt so authentic. You know, she said that loving a woman brought her peace and ecstasy for the first time. I mean, that you, that really is bound to go into a person's work and sort of change it and, and, and you know, make it more vital mm. and more vital to herself, which you see in her. Did she have to be hidden about those relationships at the time with her family or, or with society, or did she live openly with her, her partner back in the, the 50s and 60s? Well, she was in, like I said, very bohemian circles, so that she didn't have to hide it. She wasn't compelled to hide it. She felt no shame about it. But but the women that she was involved with felt a lot of reticence at first. Um, so, you know... It, it 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 was not socially acceptable at the time, but but she it didn't seem to bother her. You know, she did end up living with with her with her partner for until the end of her life. She and and Tootie would spend at least their summers on these very remote islands off the coast of Finland. What sort of landscape is that? I mean, what what kind of environment was that to go and and live in? What are those islands like? Well, they were very rough. Uh, you know, it was it was like camping out. It wasn't like going and being in your you know beautiful house, sort of <laughs> separated from the elements. There, there, there's always chores to do. Um, you know, people break in when you're. You know, I mean, they're remote as well. Like it's not like you're on an island with lots of other cottages on it. Um, there was like a sense of isolation. Uh, it was sort of sad when she tur- around the age of seventy, they could no longer go there anymore because it it was like a, a physically difficult to 
to, to live on those islands, you know, very rocky. They had to sort of blast off the rock and build a house on it. And um, it just became too difficult for them to be there, but it was their favorite place to be. So those kind of windswept barren islands, with not, not with trees and grasslands, but rocks and barren and wild storms, I'm guessing, wild seas. Mm-hmm. How would they spend mm-hmm, exactly. their, their days? Was it a place that she went to work or to get away from work? Well, she worked. She did work um, on the islands. They both did. Um, Tudi was also an artist. But it it sounds like it it was sort of a mixture of work and summertime sort of uh, peace. Like they had days where they were mostly separate from each other during the days um, and then came together in the evening for dinner. But, but, you know, she says that we don't talk much. And so the days pass in blessed tranquility. Like there was just a great deal of like, being together and being apart in in the same in the same house in the same atmosphere. What kind of uh, role did Tova Jansen's mum play in her life as as Tova was an adult and and with her partner Tootie? How was she part of that family? Um, I mean, she lived with them much of the time. She she was very very close to Tova, but there was conflict, as you might imagine, living with your girlfriend and your mother and um, <laughs> on a remote island off the Finnish coast. Yeah, that just <laughs> sounds like a whole lot of drama. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, the the greatest frustration that she expresses in the letter is sort of trying to keep things trying to keep things peaceful um, between the two of them. You know, she says like, if I try to please one, the other is happy. You know, she can never please both at the same time. I think there were tensions and, and it was hard and frustrating, but um, but it was just an accepted thing that the mother was part of their family. And so after she'd finished drawing and writing these Moomin stories, which had made her this international star, I guess, what was her work? What, what sort of artistic or, or creative life was Tova Jansen living? Well, she started writing these incredible novels and, you know, it, it to me, the novels are are just as compelling as the Moomins. Um, she wrote a book called The True Deceiver, uh, which is about a, a writer and illustrator named Anna, whose sort of life is infiltrated by this woman named Katri. And it's, it's this weird, dark story of what does it mean to give and to take from another person? there's something there's something very mysterious and sort of foreboding about it it's a wonderful novel she wrote something called the summer book which sort of takes place on the islands in which she lived um that she wrote after the death of her mother you know it was really the death of her mother that started her off on this path of writing fiction and the summer book is uh sort of the told very episodically it's about an older woman based on her mother and uh, a young girl and the adventures they have on this island together and then another novel called Fair Play, which is sort of based on her relationship with Tutti. And these novels are wonderful. They're, they're, it's interesting, like you read them and, and, and they have like an episodic quality the same way that the comics do. So there, but the, but the narrative is really in like the development of the emotions between the characters. They're terrific. Hmm. In uh, one of her, her stories that you write about in the review you wrote for the New Yorker, Travelling Light, it's partly about the demands that personal relationships can make on a person. Tell me about that story and and that sort of theme, I guess, in, in Tova Jansen's work. Yeah, I mean, there you really get the sense from her that although she loved people, she really needed to be alone and loved being alone and that, that people 
or kind of um, intrusion on that. This this story that you mentioned is uh, about a man who sort of sets off uh, on an ocean liner. He thinks he's going to finally get away from people, get away from his duties and responsibilities and family and so on. And this, of course, as soon as he gets on the liner, this this man starts talking to him and sort of burdening him with his, his own life story and uh, it turns out that they're cabin mates <laughs> and so he goes and tries to sleep on the ship to get away but you know it's pouring rain and then this woman is on the ship she he, so he tries to take you know shelter there but this this woman is there you know trying to at the very end of the story saying you know can I show you pictures of my son like just at every <laughs> move you know there's just no way to get away I think we can um, all relate to that from, from other at people. the moment this is an isolation <laughs> story <laughs> yeah but it, it's interesting because at the same time she was so generous to her readers what kind of letters did she get from fans I guess particularly of of the Moomin stories right through her life yeah well she she had a lot of fan mail from children especially and and she really made a point of trying to reply or possibly even actually replying to every single letter that she received and, and replying in a very personal way like her letters are long and they're chatty and they're warm and they're illustrated and I think she felt a great responsibility I, I'm not sure how I can't say that it really seemed like it was like an ongoing pleasure for her, but but she <laughs> felt like she had to do it, um, you know. And you know, actually, the book, The True Deceiver, takes up that theme of this this Anna character, who's the illustrator, and the problems that she had with re- with the burden of, of of writing letters and replying and and um, having to satisfy these the needs of all her readers. You know, who kind of looked up to her. She actually wrote a, a short story based on on snippets from letters that she'd gotten over the years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's called Messages, and it it is entirely made up of snippets of letters. And you know, it's people saying things like, "You know, you didn't make a happy ending. Why? <laughs> why won't you do that? Why didn't you do that?" And uh, you know. I'd like you to please tell me if we we can make a deal so that I can put the movements on potholders and <laughs> just this constant deluge of like letters, which are business letters, but also like letters from schoolgirls saying, you know, tell me everything you think about art, you know, please hurry with your reply. Just these, these constant demands. Um, and, and there's something, you know, there's something so good natured about Toba Jansen, but in that story messages, you really feel the, the, <laughs> like a lack of, um, I don't know, uh, generosity a little bit towards these people, which fair enough, I mean, you know. <laughs> fair she, enough. She's a world going, famous. You know, year after year after year. It's, yeah. It's interesting, the, the balance that it sounds like Tova was interested in finding between solitude and connection, you know, between uh, between privacy and intimacy, that's something that comes up a lot in your books too, Sheila. Did that feel like a connection you had with her when you were reading her letters and reading her fiction? Did, did you hear, feel some echoes of your own preoccupations? Yeah, of course. I mean, when you write, it's very interesting when you write about a person um, you can't help but feel so many correspondences. You know, we're all so much the same as each other. Um, I think everybody feels that uh, need for people and like need to be away from people at the same time. 
especially when you're writing about somebody through their letters, um, there's just, you know, for instance, like I keep coming back to this line in the piece um, that, you know, I wrote this piece before all the COVID stuff sort of t- took over the entire world. And she, she says um, that she wrote these movements during the war when, quote, one's work stood still, it felt completely pointless to try to create pictures. And I keep coming back to this line in my head during these, you know, last couple of months, like, one's work stood still, it felt completely pointless to try to create pictures, like just this idea of time standing still, which is how she felt during the Second World War, which is, I think, how so many people feel right now. You know, so even though, so you can't help with correspondences when you when you really go in detail into a person's life, because we all experience so many things in common. Her understanding of love or relationships as you draw it out in, in that article is so interesting. It's like... The image she seemed to keep having with her and Tootie was the two of them in the same physical place, but still with separation, like still maybe in separate beds or maybe in different parts of the house, like doing their own thing, but coming coming together to eat and to talk, but also having solitude. I think that I don't think everyone has the idea of an ideal relationship like that. I think for some people it's much more fused. It seems like her sense was wanting to maintain a solitude, which may be something to do with being a creative person, being an artist. Is that because I? Yeah, that's what I was going to say. That's what I was going to say. I mean, because you have a relationship to your art that needs a kind of undivided attention and the wholeness of yourself, and you can't. That's very hard to. Um, it's very hard to give to that if you're also always giving to another person. So she and Tutti had separate. They lived in separate apartments when they were actually in Helsinki, like during the winter, they they had like a little corridor between them and they would visit each other, but otherwise they spent their days apart working. And, you know, I, I think any, every creative person knows, knows that need to actually just sort of shut out other people's needs um, and the world. Not everyone can do it. And, and there's ways of doing it without, without, you know, people find ways around that and still find ways to make art even without that. But I think it's, that's sort of what everyone hopes for. It's just that quiet. I don't think you even have to be an artist to hope for that. I have to say, Sheila, I quite like the idea of sure, having a separate of apartment with, <laughs> with a corridor. I mean, there's, a some, there's something really, something really modern about it. You know, very modern understanding of, of, of what a person might need to feel sane. Podcast, broadcast, online. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski on ABC Radio. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. Sheila, Tova Jansen didn't have children, and that's the decision or the question that you wrestled with in your book, Motherhood. What were the main arguments that you kind of felt torn between around that question? Well, the book is a novel, so what I really wanted was to sort of show a woman grappling with that question uh, and, and just sort of illustrate the interior life of somebody at that stage, you know, in her thirties, let's say, um, where, where that, where that question can't be pushed away, you know, it's sort of 
comes up and 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 in an irritating way like I, I felt when I started writing this book like I didn't want to write about this question of whether or not to become a mother I just wanted to, to not do it or do it and not think about it and and it was very very difficult for me to sort of like turn my mind and to say this thing that you don't want to think about that you want to like ignore is actually what you should be focusing on and what you should be writing and so it wasn't so much a question of like what are the arguments for or against having children as much as like just mapping out those tiny little um, conversations, doubts, fears, desires that you have that you try not to look at because the question's sort of too overwhelming, you know? Um, that was the sort of existential position I found myself in that I wanted to put on paper because I really hadn't seen it written down anywhere. Like, there's so many wonderful books about motherhood, but I always come to these books and say, well, but why did this, why, how did the child even get there? You know, how did the, how did the writer just, or how or why did the writer decide to have this child? You know, because in so many of these wonderful books about motherhood, it seems so hard. Like, why did she choose that life? So I wanted this book to be about the moment before the choice or before life chooses. That's it. And, and there's also a lot of books or and, and memoirs, I guess, from women who wanted children and for whatever reason couldn't have them and the grief around that when that is what's sure. been longed for. But this is, as you say, a different sort of investigation, which is, do I want this or not? And what might it mean for me in my life if I do try to go down this path? Yeah. And just the question of like, what, what does it mean to be a woman that decides n not to do this? Mm. Like just a sort of grappling with, you know, what it means for one's femininity, what it, what it means, you know, as a daughter to then not become a mother, what it means for your relationship to your own mother. Um, yeah. And, and so just this, this question touches everything in life. What kind of reactions did you get to motherhood once it came out? Sorry, did you hear my dog snores? That, just I thought that was a motorbike. <laughs> That's gorgeous. No, it's huge, my, my very large dog lying on my bed. I can't keep him out of here crying. very happy to have that dog. What sort of dog is he? He's Rottweiler, 120 oh pounds. God, okay. Big friend of mine. <laughs> I'm um, glad he's next so, to you. <laughs> Yeah, he's asleep on the bed. Um, yeah, the reactions, the reactions. Well, they're very mixed. I mean, um, it, because it's such a controversial um, subject and people have so many strong feelings about this question. And, you know, there isn't really a language culturally um, that we use to talk about this question. It's it's some some reactions. People were very, very grateful for the book and they felt like they were having a conversation with themselves that they previously hadn't been able to have and then other people just didn't like it for all their reasons that a person might not like that. Why do you think book? it is still so controversial for a woman to seriously be ambivalent about whether she wants to have children or not? I don't know. Um, I think that it's I think that it's probably always it's it's always hard for a woman to really take the space to think through her life without some kind of um, sense that, oh, she's being self-indulgent or she should pay attention to more important things or just for a woman to center herself in her own life always uh, 
creates a lot of anger towards that woman, even from other women. I, I find that a lot of the problems that people had with this book were problems that women had with it, not that men mm-hmm. had with it. Um, I think a lot of people don't ask themselves certain questions and they don't want to hear other people asking those questions of themselves, like what gives you the right or why do you feel the permission to ask yourself these questions if I didn't you know, feel the permission. I'm not sure. There's just some, there's, I don't know. I don't know. It's also, as you say, Sheila, it's still such a new question Mm -hmm. for women to ask, do I want this? Or or more generally to ask, how do I combine work with personal relationships? These are, there's not really a roadmap for women around these questions. They're still very new. Yeah, I mean, when I was writing the book, that was one of the things that I felt like I didn't have any language that I could sort of or any books or any resources that I could really turn to where these questions had been worked out before. You know, I had a friend, um, a, a close friend of mine who read the book in an early draft, and she said, if if men could have children, the question of whether or not to have children would be the central question of philosophy from the time of Plato, <laughs> you know. So, and I think there's something to that. Like it's, <laughs> you know, Camus said like the great central question of philosophy was whether or not to commit suicide. But, you know, there actually is a question in most women's lives and many men's lives of like whether or not to bring life into the world. And why isn't this, you know, there are philosophers who have asked this question in various ways, but it's true what she says. It hasn't been the central question of philosophy. What approach did your own mum take to this balance of, of work and family? Um, my mother, uh, was a doctor. Um, she's retired now and she, she basically worked all the time. And my father was really the mother in the house. Um, he was the one that, you know, took me to school events and knew the names of all my friends. And, um, yeah, I have mostly memories of my father from my childhood, not of my mother, but, uh, you know, she provided another example, which was the example of like the the pleasures and and the rewards of hard work and having something that that is your own that's your own intellectual occupation so i i feel that I feel as raised by my mother by, as by my father but in a, in a kind of different way sort of by example um not because she was there you know like making sandwiches every morning did you do you think that that was hard for you as a kid or that you would have had resentment for that as a kid the fact that she didn't fulfill that traditional mothering role or was was that just how life was in your house um i i didn't resent it i remember just feeling like aware that my mother was different from other mothers that i knew you know m- many of my friends their mothers either didn't work or didn't work in the same way that my mother did but i i always felt kind of proud of her and you know i'm sure as a child there were complicated feelings but I feel like childhood is so far away. I can barely remember any of it. <laughs> Your mum spent some time, I, well, I assume this is true. I th- I'm having to be reminded that motherhood is a novel and not a memoir. So if I've got this wrong, just correct me. But I think that she spent some time living away from your family home when she was studying for her medical degree. How do you remember that time? Yeah, that's actually something that happened. So the book, you know, has is uh, – there are scenes that are invented and there are scenes that are can come from my life. And, and that does come from my life. I, I, I do remember that very vividly. I remember visiting my mother in her apartment and she just had like 
books, you know, textbooks, medical textbooks all over the place and highlighters and pens and paper and, and visiting her with my father and being, you know, like a four or five year old girl and just all I wanted was that exact life that my mother had. Like I wanted to be alone in an apartment with books and pens. And it just seemed like the most glamorous, wonderful thing, you know, that anyone could possibly be living. And, you know, that is kind of what I created for myself as an adult. And I, this is one of the things that I think about in the book is like, does becoming a mother mean doing what your mother did? So if my mother was alone in an apartment without child like with her books and then I grew up to be the same woman can I call myself a mother you know it's just the book was really rethinking this idea of what it means to be a mother. What kind of family had your mum growing up in Sheila? Um, her mother uh, was in Auschwitz when she was a girl and came out of it um, and lived and you know had a husband and a, a sort of thwarted life you know she was wanted to be and study to be a lawyer, but then because of her husband making a stupid decision with the family business, she couldn't get her degree in the end. So, you know, my grandmother was very, very intelligent, sort of ambitious woman who, who, whose life was, had a lot of sorrow in it, you know, parents and, and siblings killed in, in, in the second world war um yeah in the holocaust so there just i think a lot that was unspoken between her and my mother that couldn't be spoken there was uh the, just the way that we inherit sadness from our mothers and our mothers from their mothers and you know is there is there a way of uh tending to that can you sort of mother your own mother and 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 have mothering be a thing that goes backwards through time rather than forwards through time so the, my grandmother's no longer alive I never met her but sort of one of the questions in my book is like can you heal the sadness of a life that's already um, passed is there some way in which uh, can, can you sort of fold time in some way through the actions of the present and heal the past and that question of of noticing the way that trauma sadness can be passed down from a mother to child and and on what kind of answers have you found to to that question about whether it can be healed in your own life well i don't know i mean my mother um my mother and i have a very different much closer and more understanding relationship since i wrote this book you know she she read many drafts of it and so it was partly because of that sharing my artistic life with my mother also i think she felt like the book um was a a, a profound gift to her um in a way that made her life make sense a gift in what yeah. sense in, in understanding why she being the sort of mother that she had been to you? I, I don't know if it, maybe it was that, but also sort of like bringing her mother to life in a way, like a person who lives in the pages of a book has a certain kind of eternal life. I think that was the way that she felt a little bit about it. And, you know, just sort of seeing that I had a relationship to her mother, even though her mother was not a figure for me, a living figure for me, I think was moving for her in a way that, um, you know, like some sense of continuity. Like if you have a child, that's continuity. And and I think she felt this was a, a kind of continuity from me back through to her. What does she make of your ambivalence uh, about having children, your, your final decision not to have children? What did she make of that? Uh, 
sorry. <laughs> My boyfriend just walked by the door, so the dog barked. I'll just wait till he calms down. It's okay. He's on the ready. Um, he is ready, ready yeah, for action. He's that dog. protecting me. <laughs> um, I mean, I think my mother, my mother understands. She's not. I, I you know, the book, the the character in the book, um, feels a lot of judgment from her immediate circle in a way that I actually didn't. But I, you know, I wanted the character to to feel what I think many women feel, which is that that pressure from the women around them, from their families. Uh, I didn't personally get that. Well, you've, you have written and, and a lot in your earlier novel, How Should a Person Be, about your very close friendships with women, you know, that are intellectual and artistic and emotional. And have those relationships with friends changed as some of those women that you're close to have had children and you haven't? How has that shifted things between you personally? Not as, not the, not, not so much. I mean, I think that was my fear. And it's, it hasn't really, it hasn't really shifted things so much. I mean, obviously, my friends who who are mothers have, have something in the center of their life that's new and very important to them. But all the women I know who are mothers also, their friendships are important to them too. And in some ways, more important just as a, as a respite from home. Yeah, I, I feel just as close to my female friends, but I, I think I fear that that wouldn't be the case, that they would sort of go off into some other family world and, and not be not be interested in friendship in the same way. That that's not that proved not to be true, thankfully. You you mentioned reading with your niece and, you know, friends who've who've had children. Do you see yourself as having a kind of a a role as a as an aunt or as a, a friend to your friend's kids? What kind of adult role do you have with the children in your life? Yeah, I mean, I have relationships with with children. Um, uh, I think I feel very lucky, you know, that um, the same way that I can pick the adults that I'm interested in, <laughs> you know, and have them in my life, I get to pick the children that I'm interested in. Like, oh, it's not necessarily just the children of my, you know, or the, or it's not necessarily the children of my closest friends whose children I, I, I'm close to. There's there's just children that I get along with, that I like, that I that like me, that we can have a relationship. And and it, it feels sort of very special to be able to have friends of different ages. I mean, that's what it feels like to me. I really love and understand friendship. Friendship is one of the most important things in my life. And that I can have a 10-year-old friend or I can have a six-year-old friend and, you know, take her to art classes or show her the things that I loved. Like, that's very that's very nice for me. And it seems to me that that's a, a nicer or, or richer way to understand society too, that it's not just the the nuclear family of parents and child and that's the meaningful relationship. This idea that there are lots of lines going back and forth across generations, that seems a much more fruitful or happy kind of world to exist in. Yeah, I mean, I would have loved to have other adults in my life apart from my immediate family you know I would have loved to have an adult who took me to the movies you know like just just not to say that my parents didn't take me to the movies but just to have other examples around you know there's something about the nuclear family where if you just have parents around you all the time you think well those are the only two ways that that a man and a woman can be like or you know if you have two women who are your mothers like that's the only Somehow, like all humans are variations <laughs> on the on your parents, and there's something so claustrophobic about that. Whereas, like, 
the more adults that you can see, the less that is the case. My parents didn't have a lot of friends or they didn't have people around, grown up around. So, so I particularly <laughs> would have liked that. The, the the one of the things that struck me reading your work and and looking at Tova Jansen's again was the way that you both seem really determined to live by or live with intention, kind of find the values that are meaningful for you, that not ones that might have been handed down or modelled by parents or or expected in society, but really this question of well what what is the right thing for me and for my work. That seems very conscious for you. And it seems like it was for Tova Jansen too. Yeah, I mean, I think anybody who has the sense of a central purpose in life, you know, like a, or, or a central calling or something that you really, really need to do and have to do and want to do, there's no way of doing that unless you make deliberate choices. Um, at least I found, I mean, maybe there are other ways of doing it, but for me, I've always just found like the, the safest route, the most natural route is to, to sort of structure a life around that desire. In my case, the desire to write and everything sort of follows from that one choice. You know, you make one, I feel like I made one choice in my life, which was to be a writer and every other choice is a offspring of that choice. Well, how do you think about that word mother now? You're saying that you'd maybe had a, a different understanding it, about it as a kid, given the roles your individual mum and dad played. How do you see that word and all of its associations now, having done such a deep dive into it and its connotations in the in your book, Motherhood? Um, yeah, it's a, it's a word that's a little looser to me. Um, it's a word that can be sort of more metaphorical um, and not just a word that identifies one very specific kind of activity or woman. Um, you know, my my father was as much my mother as my mother is. And, and I think writing this book just sort of gave me permission to play with that word and, and, and to have new feelings around it. So I, I feel like a, a warmth towards that word before, whereas I think I used to feel like an alienation, a hostility, like that word was for other people and not for me, not for my mother. You know, it... It, it, it was a word I didn't like at all. I don't, I don't feel that way anymore. There's an image of a cocoon that you write about in the book. Do you remember that image and why it was interesting to you, what you learned about the way cocoons and butterflies and caterpillars work? Yeah, I remember talking to a friend of mine. We were taking a walk and he was telling me that he had just learned that, you know, when a caterpillar is inside a cocoon it doesn't just like sprout wings and turn into a butterfly but it actually turns to mush and then the mush turns into a butterfly and I loved that so much I thought why didn't I know that my whole life and and so for me this idea of like writing a book you know when you're writing a book you're kind of like in a cocoon with it and and you're in a state of mush like you're not really anything when you're when you're in that moment or those years. And I just felt very, very relieved that I could have that <laughs> image from nature as a kind of way of understanding what it is to to create something, you know? While you're creating something, you are mush. While you're transforming, you're mush. That there's total disintegration before the, the new thing. It's not just a shinier and more polished version of what was there exactly. already. We have to go through the mush. Are you able to find that mush at the moment with the the restrictions on it's movement. All mush. And, it's all mush. <laughs> <laughs> it's just pure mush. <laughs> well, how are you spending yeah. your days in in lockdown? I walk my dog. I 
I, I'm working on a new novel. I'm, you know, doing the dishes, talking on the phone to friends, doing my, the work I have to do and napping, you know, <laughs> I think that it's, it's, it's like it was before, but just without any of the same sense of sort of concentration. I really do feel like Tova Jensen felt like life standing still, one's work standing still, you know, there's just a anxiety for the world and, and, and everyone and a sense of when's this going to end? How is this going to transform everything? You know, you, you can never get very far from those feelings. When you go for walks, what kind of landscape are you in in this period? Well, I'm in in the woods. I'm having, a, again, a very Tova Jensen kind of <laughs> experience of nature for the first time in my life, really. Um, so that's, that, that's really nice. I'm really lucky and grateful for that. Well, it's really lovely to speak with you, Sheila, and, and thank you for sharing Tova Jansen's love story and some reflections on your own. Thanks so much for being my guest on Conversations. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.